Now arriving, the Let's Talk Train Show. All Kansas City Nathan. Today we are going to have a nice show with our guest Bob Alkire, as we will be talking about the unfortunate events that occurred on Amtrak up in Washington State back in December. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Join us and help us make the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation better than ever. Your membership will help us further enhance our exhibits and attractions in north-central Missouri, including the Let's Talk Train Show. Our goal is to set up a museum dedicated to passenger rail history, including Amtrak, located in La Plata, Missouri. Memberships and contributions from friends like you will help us achieve this goal. For more information about the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation, membership, and opportunities available, visit our website, www.aprhf.org. Do you or someone you know love trains? Lots of them? Welcome to Virtual Railfan. Now you can watch hundreds of trains per day from our cams located all over the United States, all from the comfort of your home, smartphone, or tablet. Live HD feeds from Class 1 railroads. Plus, you can hear the action from trackside scanners and get to know other railfans in our live chat room. Subscribe today to start your Virtual Railfan membership and start watching trains right away. Virtual Railfan, we bring the trains to you. All right, and this is Kansas City Nathan, and we are the Let's Talk Train Show. We have a special guest with us today, our good friend Bob Alkire. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's kind of good to be back, and uh, glad to hear that Let's Talk Trains is uh, back on the air again. Absolutely, and we are glad that you were able to join us. And uh, with uh, uh, we were going to be talking today a little bit about the uh, unfortunate events that happened up in uh, in your neck of the woods, up in Washington State. But um, again, welcome back, Bob. Um, hopefully, we can have have you and uh, Elizabeth on the show uh, every once in a while, and uh, uh, you know, talk about things that are going on up the air in the uh, Northwest. Well. Definitely me for sure, but probably not Elizabeth. She has, I think, pretty much decided to retire from hosting and leave those duties to me by myself. All right. Well, let's go ahead and um, let's talk a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, we had this unfortunate event with the uh, derailment uh, with uh, multiple uh, um, fatalities, but um, uh, you've done a little bit of research, and uh, uh, you wanted to try to uh, you wanted to present that to us today uh, to our listeners um, that are not familiar with the area. And um, so, without further ado, Bob, the mic is yours. All righty. Well, as everybody knows, of course, on December the eighteenth, Amtrak train five hundred one, the very first train to use the new Point Defiance Bypass route derailed on a 30-mile-an-hour curve 
going um, going across Interstate 5 near DuPont, Washington. What I'd like to start doing start is by giving a little bit of history about the the route, uh, the original route, which is called the Point Defiance route, and then talk about a little a little bit about how the Point Defiance bypass came into play, and also talk again about um, Washington State and their uh, use of Talgo trains. Uh, let's talk a little bit more. There's been a lot of questions about uh, positive train control and why that has not been. Um, why that was not in use at the time of the the derailment uh there are have been there are some safety issues that are being asked and and looked at and addressed uh and then finally we'd like to I'd like to finish it off by talking a little bit about um the state of Washington and their proposed high speed rail uh uh project for the Cascadia corridor uh, the Cascadia Corridor, by the way, is defined as the area between <clears throat> Vancouver, British Columbia, through Seattle, down to Portland, and then on down to ending at Eugene, Oregon. So, so to start with, let's get a little bit of history to give some perspective about the uh, the Point Defiance Point Defiance route um, between Seattle and Portland. Trains travel over what has been called the Point Defiance Route. This has been the main route for passenger train or for all trains, passenger and freight, since 1914. Essentially, it is a joint line. It was built by the Northern Pacific Railroad, but also used by the Great Northern and Union Pacific Railroads. From Tacoma, the line which normally heads south actually turns west to follow a very scenic route along Puget Sound. Uh, the route got its name from passing through Point Defiance Park, which was originally a military reservation. The name Point Defiance came from the idea of placing forts at, at the point as well as across the Tacoma Narrows at Gig Harbor. The idea was by doing this, one could, quote, defy the world. However, Point Defiance was never used as a military base and became a park in 1888. As I said, this is a joint line, uh, and it has been used uh, since 1914 by trains of the Union Pacific, uh, Burlington, uh, Union Burlington, no, Burlington, well, Burlington Northern since 1970, actually, um, and then Amtrak. Now, when Amtrak took over passenger service in 1971, there was a significant change made to the service from Los Angeles. The two railroad trains, the Southern Pacific Coast Daylight and the Southern Pacific Cascade trains between Los Angeles and San Francisco, and then San Fran or Oakland and Portland, were combined into a through train between Los Angeles and Portland by way of Oakland. It was then extended to Seattle by re replacing one of the pool trains. This was the first time a through train had been run between these two points since 1960. Oakland to Seattle actually ran tri-weekly until June 1973 when it became daily. In the 1980s, <clears throat> the Washington State Department of Transportation was looking to include um, some additional service under what was then 
the 403B Act, which allowed states to add service to the basic Amtrak route. Um, in order to provide service, uh, the state looked at the possibility of using something other than either current steam-heated equipment or Amtrak's replacement Amfleet equipment. Talgo's, which is now currently used on the service between or in the Cascadia Corridor, actually came to the Pacific Northwest in 1994. First, it was started as a six-month trial between Seattle and Portland. Two people, Jim Hamra, who was killed in the crash, and Charles Mott through the Washington Association of Rail Passengers, as well as the Cascadia Institute, a regional think tank devoted to transportation issues, were instrumental in convincing the Washington State DOT to test the Taugos. Service began in April of that year, and Oregon came aboard in October with a train to Eugene. Then in 1998, the service was rebranded to Amtrak Cascades when four Talgo train sets were purchased. Two were owned by Washington State, two were owned by Amtrak. Then in 2004, Washington purchased a third Talgo train set from Amtrak that had been originally purchased for a demonstration run between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. But that service was never funded. Since the Cascades began operating, there have been several service expansions, which has included additional service to Portland, Eugene, as well as trains to Vancouver, BC. Then in 2013, Amtrak, or the state of Oregon purchased two additional uh, trains to be used for service expansions, which led to the current amount of, of Talgo trains, Amtrak Cascade Talgo trains, between Seattle and Portland of six. Now let's talk a little bit about the Point Defiance Bypass and how that came about. I moved to Washington State in June of 2005, and back then uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway was entertaining the idea of moving Amtrak off the Point Defiance route because of freight congestion. The biggest problem with this route is the single-track Nelson-Bennett Tunnel. It has been causing um, problems for freight trains, as well as Cascade trains, as well as the Coast Starlight, plummeting on time percentage on the Cascades and the Coast Starlight down to as low as 60% at times. So BNSF decided, let's get the passenger trains off the Point Defiance route and put them on another, li another line. The route that was proposed is a former Northern Pacific branch running south from Tacoma, along ba Joint Base Lewis-McChord through DuPont, and then it rejoins the main line north of Nisqually. Interestingly enough, these tracks were never designated for passenger service. A line was originally built mainly as a tracks, tracks to serve the Fort Lewis Army Base and McCord Air Force Base, which is now called Joint, Lewis, Joint Base Lewis-McCord. <clears throat> Initial work began on the project in 2006 with studies and acquisitions as a joint effort between Amtrak, Sound Transit, and the Washington State Department of Transportation. One thing we should note, a lot of the media 
reporting about the accident, stated that this line was built as a high-speed rail route. Now, in the context of high-speed rail, that's not true. When these tracks were rebuilt, they were really just upgraded from 30-mile-an-hour to 79-mile-an-hour track to accommodate passenger trains. And the rebuild was basically so that passenger trains could be taken off the Point Defiance line at the insistence of BNSF Railway. And actually, all this upgrade did was, was save 10 minutes of travel time between Seattle and Portland and allow the state of Washington to add two more trains between Seattle and Portland. Now, as I stated earlier, the upgrade of the line came about because of the insistence of BNSF and was a joint uh, effort between Washington State Department of Transportation, um, Amtrak, Sound Transit, and the state of Washington. Now, Sound Transit, which is the area's commuter service, actually began construction on the bypass. Uh, they started in 2009 so that service could be extended from Tacoma to Lakewood. That project was completed in 2012 and is now running. Amtrak then took over developing the rest of the line between Lakewood and Nisqually. That part of the project began in December 2014 and was completed in June 2017. Testing on the route started in July, and the line opened for service on December 18th. Then after voters passed the Sound Transit 3 issue in November, plans are now being made to extend Sounder commuter trains from Lakewood by two stations to Tillicum and DuPont using the same tracks. Now, in just as, as a side note, one would sit there, if you're familiar with the area, um, extending south to DuPont and ending there, one would think, okay, to, uh, Olympia, the state capital, is just another 20 miles down the road. Why not extend to Olympia? Because Olympia is, in, is outside the Sound Transit operating area. Um, essentially, uh, DuPont is about as far south in Pierce County that uh, Sounder can go. Uh, without e extending beyond its operating area and requiring um, um, Lewis County to join in and uh, to join in to the Sound Transit board, so that is why Sound Transit only ex is extending to Dupont instead of going on down to Olympia. Uh, will the Cascades use part of these stations, some of these stations, in the future? At this point, there are no plans, but then who knows? Now, a uh, quick question for you, Bob. Um, yes. With the rail line, uh, with the possibility of uh, expanding, or, or would there be a possibility of expanding the rail lines uh, to Olympia uh, using a different, um, uh, using a different, uh, um, and I'm sorry, uh, service uh, that would be able to interconnect or the service service area would that would they have to create a whole different um, um, project or um, district or how would they have to go about that well what would they would have to do is <clears throat> um, Lewis County would have to have a referendum to decide whether or not they want to join sound transit um, so that the assorted taxes and other other 
things that are involved with um, with sound transit would be available to the residents of Lewis County. Uh, now, there is a very uh, effective bus service that runs between, express bus service that runs between Olympia and Tacoma at present that connects with, um, that connects with sound transit commuter trains going on into Seattle. So essentially all that really would need to happen would be to change the bus service uh, for the expresses, the express buses to change the, um, the service to only go as far as DuPont to connect with sounder uh, commuter trains. Now, one other thing to make so that people understand, um, sounder commuter service only operates Monday through Friday in the rush hours. There are currently 10 trains that operate between uh, Seattle and Lakewood, and there are another four trains that operate north between Seattle and Everett. Sound Transit wants to expand commuter service um, between Seattle and Tacoma, as well as Lakewood, and then on down to Tillicum and DuPont, to the point where they would probably end up having all-day service on that line. And when you Extending say all-day... north... Oh, I'm sorry. Pardon me? I was just going to say... Um, with the with it being only Monday through Friday, um, there's no service on the weekends at all. There is no weekend service. Uh, however, Sound Transit does run commuter trains on Sunday for um, Mariners baseball, um, Seahawks football, and Sounder um, <laughs> soccer. Uh, excuse me, Sounder soccer service. Okay. Okay, and they're looking at possibly expanding it out to make it a a daily a daily operation, kind of like what you would look at on the uh, Pacific um, on the um, like New Jersey Transit Authority or Metro in Chicago or Metro in Chicago, uh, kind of like that. Metro Link in Los Angeles on uh -huh. some of their lines, yes. Okay, and um, that that is ultimately the goal, at the least goal. on the south end. Okay, now on the north end. Um, Sounder basically cannot expand any service. Uh, they are limited by a contract with BNSF Railway that they can only operate four trains a day. Four, I see. Four trains going south, four trains going north. So in order to compensate for that, there is a light rail line that currently runs uh, from SeaTac Airport north to the University of Washington. And that line will be expanded to serve Linwood by the year 2024 and then on up to Everett by the year 2040. Okay. Now what kind of, um, um, now with this being a private, this is a privately held company or is this a public slash private company? How is the, um, how is this company um, uh, operate? Uh, how do they operate as? Uh, Sounder, um, Sound Transit um, is actually a um, government-run uh, company. It serves the Seattle metropolitan area through King, Snohomish County on the north, and Pierce County on the south. And it runs a combination of commuter trains, heavy rail commuter trains, light rail, and buses. 
Okay. Um, funding is primarily through various types of taxes, uh, taxes coming from sales tax, auto license tax, and property taxes. Okay. All right. Well, Bob, right now we are probably at a really good point uh, to take a break. But when we come back, uh, we'll continue talking a little bit about the history, um, the current uh, uh, current system, and then uh, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, um, some other things involving the uh, the unfortunate derailment that happened back in December. So, folks, stick with us, and we'll be right back. White River Productions is a leading producer of railroad historical society publications in the world. WRP currently produces over 25 historical society magazines, calendars, books, and other items such as membership brochures, advertising rate cards, annual mean announcements, and ballots. They're also known for their magazines catering to rail fans and model railroaders, which includes Railfan and Railroad, Passenger Train Journal, TRP, Model Railroad News, and Railroad Model Craftsman. Be sure to visit their website to learn about these publications as well as the other available railroad-related books and magazines at www.whiteriverproductions.com. If you like trains and you like to read, look no further than White River Productions. We've got something for everyone. White River Productions, your ticket to read. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service with a report on what could be called our nation's first media event when the railroad was finally completed from coast to coast. It occurred on May 10, 1869. Trains came from the west and the east and went nose to nose at a place known as Promontory Point, Utah. Leland Stanford, representing the Central Pacific Railroad, and Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific, took turns using a silver sledgehammer to drive home a spike of gold. When they finished their work, the nation was united by rails that stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. How did it become a media event? Telegraph wires were attached to that spike, and as it was hammered into place, the news was flashed across the nation. Celebrations were set off nationwide. A magnetic ball was dropped from the Capitol Dome in Washington. A four-mile-long parade began to move in Chicago, and dozens of church bells rang out in San Francisco. Now it was possible to go from the East Coast to the West in days rather than months. Vast areas of the interior were open to farmers and miners. Distance was no longer an insurmountable obstacle. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad was the final act needed to make the United States both an industrial giant and the world's most efficient agricultural nation. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. All right, and we are back on the Let's Talk Train Show. This is Kansas City, Nathan, and we have our good friend Bob Alkire on the show with us today. And we're talking about the um, fortunate events that happened up in Washington State back in December, uh, talking about some history of the uh, of the rail line where the incident did occur and uh, some of the uh, other details uh, for us that are not around from the uh, that area. Uh, we have a better understanding. So, uh, Bob, uh, we were talking about uh, the before the break we were t- uh, we kind of got off a little off guard uh, off uh, track there um, 
about talking about the uh, some of the different um, uh, the sounder, uh, but let's go back and let's talk a little bit more about the um, actual branch, um, the uh, bypass. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, as I was saying, the idea for the bypass came about in 2005 when Burlington Northern Santa Fe decided that. <clears throat> The current line around Point Defiance was too congested to operate both passenger trains and freight trains. So they started working with Amtrak Sound, uh, Sound Transit and the State Department of Transportation in 2006 to create a bypass for passenger trains. And the, pi the bypass basically came about as a result of a, the former Northern Pacific branch that was originally built to serve um, Fort Lewis Army Base and uh, McCord Air Force Base, which is now nowadays referred to as Joint Base Lewis-McCord. So, to, as, as I stated earlier, Sound Transit began work on the line in 2009 so they could extend commuter service from the current terminus in Lakewood south to, or the current terminus in Tacoma south to the a new terminus in Lakewood. And then Amtrak came along and took over and extended the line, or currently took over the line, building the line and refurbishing the line uh, from Lakewood south to Nisqually, where it joined the original or the current uh, main line that runs between Seattle and Portland. So then the question is, how is this, how is this all going to come about and where was the money come, become, going to be coming from? Now, from what I have been able to find out, there seems to be conflicting reports about how the bypass was to be funded. Uh, from the information I can find, it appears that this was initially or originally going to be an entire uh, Washington State DOT-funded uh, project with a completion date of 2019. However, with the election of President Barack Obama, the uh, Obama administration came up with efforts to help develop high-speed rail. So the DOT applied for funding as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. In 2010, ARRA agreed to provide $150 million to move the completion date forward to 2017. And the state of Washington provided an additional $31 million as their state matching portion. Now, let me say one thing, and I will be dealing a little bit more with this later. The actual amount that the state DOT applied for and won was $800 million. Of that $800 million, $150 million was used for the Point Defiance bypass. The rest of it was used for a whole lot of other projects, and as I said, some of which I will mention a little bit later. Um, one of the things that we have been hearing a lot about, and it seems to be continuously showing up in media reports and NTSB-related re uh, releases, and that's the issue of positive train control. And much has been said about the fact that PTC would have prevented this accident, and why was the service started before PTC had been installed? 
Well, the answer to that is actually two-part and very simple. <laughs> Time and money. Mm-hmm. First part, <laughs> money. Funding for positive train control was not part of the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act grant. Uh, as most people are aware of, positive train control, uh, the funding for that is actually the responsibility of whoever owns the track, which in this case is Sound Transit. Now, Sound Transit has said they will have their PTC installation completed and operational by December 20 or by the December 31st, 2018 deadline. However, now we get to the second part of the problem, and it's the greater part of the problem, and that's the and that involves time. Um, when the grant was applied for, all projects under this $800 million grant had to be completed and operational by December 31st, 2017. That forced Amtrak to begin service on the Port Defiance Bypass before PTC had been installed and operational. So Amtrak was stuck. <laughs> if, they, if they wanted the, the money, if the state wanted the money, they had to have the trains running by the end of last year. Now, a quick question uh, for you. they'd have to give it all back. Now, a quick question and for you, Bob. That money's all spent. Can you, see, can, can you see anybody trying to come up and scrape up $150 million and, that they've already spent and say, okay, we'll just pay it back to you guys? Right. Uh, now, a quick question no, for you, Bob. <laughs> no. Um, that's not going to happen. Now, a quick question. So, qu- in essence, um, Amtrak and Sound Transit was really forced to begin service on the line before PTC was installed, completed, and operational. And that is just an unfortunate fact of what happens when you're dealing with federal grants. And now, there's no two ways around it. Now, a quick question for you, Bob, is that um, talking about PTC, wasn't um, PTC um, or the a lot of the lines supposed to be um, uh, that Amtrak served under be under PTC? Yes. The, actually, the original PTC deadline, as mandated by Congress, was December 31st, 2015. However, with all the problems the railroads have been having um, with PTC, and especially dealing with the radio frequencies and getting the proper licenses to operate PTC, um, Congress extended the deadline to December 31st, 2018. Um, that's kind of an indirect answer to your question. To answer it more directly, PTC is required on all lines that have passenger service or where um, flammable cargo is uh, used on those on the tracks. So any railroad line that uses that um, that runs um, like the the oil trains. That all has to have PTC. Uh, All the railroad tracks where the nuclear waste trains run, those have to have PTC. Any line that has passenger trains on it, that's required to have PTC. I see. So whether it's passenger trains or hazardous hazardous materials, all those lines have to have positive train control uh, on them, activated, and operational by December 20 or December 31st of this year. 
there has been, I have heard, some possibility of extending the deadline, again, because of a lot of the problems, to 2020. Whether or not that will happen at this point is only speculation, and I really don't want to get into that part. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, because of the fact that there is no PTC on this line, and as a result of the derailment, um, passenger service has uh, been restored to the point defiance route and will not return until after PTC installation and testing has been completed. And again, Sound Transit has said that they will have PTC um, ready, tested, and completed by the deadline. So as a result of having to turn the trains back onto the original route, plus the fact that Amtrak is short to Talgo train sets, the two additional trains that were supposed to be part of the service expansion have been suspended until the bypass route reopens, or at least the two Portland-Seattle trains that were added. Um, service between Portland and Eugene has not been effect affected. Um, along with the issue of PTC, there have been a number of safety issues that have been raised, uh, some as a result of accidents, uh, some as just general criticism of Amtrak safety culture. Now, first of all, one of the definite pieces of information we know, because the Amtrak has released that information, was that the train was traveling at 80 miles an hour when it went into the curve. For some reason, the brakes were never applied. Now, let me put a little bit of this into a little bit of perspective. About two miles, well, okay. Oh, you are, let's go, okay, let's go this way. About two miles before the curve that takes the train onto the bridge over I-5, and I'm assuming everybody has seen all the news pictures of that, that S-curve that goes over on the bridge over I-5. Um, there is a speed restriction that slows the trains down from 79 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. And then again, just before the curve on the bridge, that speed restriction is of 30 miles an hour is posted again. Uh, as I said, this gives the engineer two miles, approximately two miles to slow the train from 79 miles to 30 miles an hour before it hits the curve. So why didn't the engineer slow, slow down? At this point, we don't know. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, any explanation by me to a attempt explanation is only going to be speculation. And at this point, I'm going to wait until the NTSB uh, report comes out. We also know definitively that neither the engineer nor the conductor trainee who were in the cab were using the cell phones while in the locomotive. So at this point, we know cell phone distraction can be ruled out as a possible cause. However, other types of distraction, uh, are other potential types of distractions are still being investigated by the NTSB. Now, a quick question, Bob. Um, what, did the uh, did the uh, conduct uh, the assi assistant conductor and the um, and the engineer did they survive the incident? Yes, they did. Okay, and they will be or they will be interviewed by the NTSB when they have recovered enough uh, to the point where they will be able to um, uh, talk 
talk to the NTSB. As of the last reports that I've heard, um, neither the engineer nor the conductor trainee in the cab have any recollection of the incident. So we will just have to wait until the NTSB is in a position to interview both the uh, the locomotive engineer and the conductor trainee that were in the cab. Okay. But one of the other questions that has come up that has been being raised is about the adequacy of the training that has been used to familiarize engineers and conductors with the route. There have been a lot of claims made by engineers and conductors that they were only qualified after three trips along the line. They were qualified um, with multiple people in the cabs, most of whom were confined to being observers. And some crews claimed that their training, they were only able to be trained in the dark, so they couldn't see any of the landmarks that would familiarize themselves, familiarize them with um, the locale that they were serving in. So there has been a lot of criticism about the amount and the way uh, Amtrak trained the crews. Now, Amtrak and the Washington State Department of Transportation have said that the crews were trained in accordance with proper operating procedures, but there is an interesting uh, point that I will bring up here in a couple of minutes. The, um, I mean, some of these charges, or these charges basically, um, seem to support a lot of the accusations that have made been made about Amtrak and the fact that there is a, um, a lack of safety culture within Amtrak. Uh, and one of the one interesting item is that the Cascadia Institute, again, uh, the Cascadia Institute is a local think tank that specializes in transportation issues, did a study after the July 6th derailment at Stylacombe, um, where an Amtrak train derailed because of excessive speed. And they recommended that the states of Washington and Oregon find somebody else to operate the trains other than Amtrak simply because of the lack of any kind of safety culture at Amtrak. And now here comes the really interesting goodie. In a statement before the Washington State House of Transportation Committee, on January 10th, Amtrak senior, senior manager Rob Eaton acknowledged Amtrak is taking responsibility for the Amtrak derailment um, of train 501 and they need to take serious steps to ensure the safety of the Amtrak Cascades operation. Um, this statement is in many ways in line with what Wick Mormon, the former chairman of Amtrak, uh, tried to start or started <clears throat> while he was chairman and now his successor, Richard Anderson, is uh, continuing. So Amtrak has at least acknowledged they have a problem with safety. So, again, it's going to be interesting to see what, uh, what if anything, the NTSB does uh, regarding the, uh, the way the engineers were trained and the amount of training that was done. Another issue that has come up has been raised about the bridge over I-5. Why wasn't it replaced as part of the upgrade? 
So to start with, let me give you a little bit of perspective based on my knowledge of the area as well as some historical data. Let's start with um, at, in the bridge, in the area of the bridge, as I said. About two miles before the bridge, there is a speed restriction from 79 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. The only problem with that is that is also the start of a approximate 1.7% downgrade heading south. So to bring a train down from 79 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour on a downgrade is going to require a lot of braking, probably more so than if it were just flat surface. Then, just before the bridge, there is a really sharp left turn to go over the bridge. And as soon as you cross the bridge, a very sharp right turn to continue on south. Uh, and the bridge itself was built in 1936, making it 81 years old. And at that age, it was probably due for replacement anyway. Uh, reducing the severity of the curves or eliminating them altogether would have definitely eliminated the need for a 30 mile an hour speed restriction. But according to an article in the Seattle Times, it would have cost an additional $230 million to replace the bridge over I-5. And the article goes on to state that under the circumstances, replacing the bridge was never really a consideration. The money that would, could have been used for the bridge replacement would have brought the cost of the I-5 uh, or the Point Defiance bypass up to about $403 million, or in essence about half of what the state received in the ARRA grant. Um, and the Washington State Department of Transportation felt they needed to put the money to use elsewhere. And that the 30 mile an hour speed restriction over the bridge was adequate to handle the, uh, the, the trains that were going to be operating there. Um, interestingly, some of that money that was used was used for projects such as landslide protection between Seattle and Everett, uh, which is something I really, in a way, I can't really argue with. Um, living up here in the Pacific Northwest, it's that line is prone to landslides, and at least two or three times a month from basically December through April, uh, the line is shut down because of landslides, which results in the Empire Builder and the Cascades going up to Vancouver, British Columbia being canceled for a couple of days with bus substitutions. Uh, some of the other money was spent in the improving tracks at the, in the area of Port of Vancouver, Washington, to give get uh, BNSF and Union Pacific freight trains out of the way of Amtrak passenger trains. Again, um, it's an it's a, it's something that for me personally I can't argue with it. Having been down there and spent time train watching down there, uh, if it hadn't been for those improvements that area is a real bottleneck and would have continued to be so without the improvements. So where do you spend the money? On the bridge, on other improvements? You've got limited amount of funds. Where does the money go? I don't know. All I can say is that I hope the NTSB will look into some of that as part of their investigation. And then... 
finalize, or my last particular point, is I'd like to talk a little bit about high-speed rail for the Cascadia Corridor. Um, one of the interesting things is in 2006, the Washington State Department of Transportation prepared a study of high-speed rail. Plan envisioned a high-speed rail route between Vancouver, B.C. and Oregon. And this study was recently updated within the last six months. However, both studies envision completely new tracks so that trains can operate at 110 miles an hour, but they would operate with speed restrictions in the Seattle urban area core. Now, according to the DOT, someday, or now, according to the DOT, someday that will happen. And of course, the big question is, Where's the money going to come from to do it? So will it become a possibility? I don't know. Who knows? And the DOT says, as part of this grand plan for um, upgrading the Cascadia Corridor to 110 miles an hour operation, that bridge over I-5 that was part of the derailment, that's going to be replaced. When? Who knows? And one of the interesting thing of it is to kind of finalize when the Point Defiance project was proposed and built. As I said, none of this, very little of this to none of this was really set up to be high-speed rail. The line was essentially upgraded from 30 miles an hour to 79 miles an hour. It was built strictly for passenger trains, and it was built so that Amtrak could have could basically reduce the running time between uh, Portland and Seattle by 10 minutes and allow set, uh, Amtrak and BNSF to fulfill their contractual agreements uh, to expand trains from six trains a day each way to eight trains a day each way. So there we are. All right, Bob. Well, that was a lot of information, and we greatly appreciate um, your uh, uh, the knowledge, the uh, information that you've provided to us. Um, now, with the uh, has there been any announcements on when the NTSB is going to be releasing their report? I'm sorry. What was that? Is the is there a specific date or a time frame of when the NTSB is going to? be releasing the uh, their report on the incident? They're saying 12 to 24 months. Oh, my. Okay. And in the meantime... Which is about mm -hmm. standard for an NTSB accident report. Now, uh, in regards to... You mentioned before that um, the additional two trains each way uh, has been suspended. Um, has this caused any more... Um, any more delays or caused any um, um, any issues with the current system that they had, uh, the current or the previous um, way that they operated the trains uh, in that region? Um, has it has it changed in any different since the derailment? Not to my knowledge. Um, again, it's it's the main sticking point. And the reason for the building of the bypass in the first place is the fact that <clears throat> the Nelson-Bennett Tunnel is single-track through, um, or is a single-track operation, and trying to get um, BNSF 
through freights, Union Pacific through freights, local switching, Port of Tacoma trains all through that area is a cause of major congestion. And as I said, that's why the Point Defiance bypass was built in the first place. Um, so until the, uh, until the bypass is complete and ready to go, my best guess is that there's going to be it's going to be the same old, same old, and there's going to be the usual uh, problems and delays. Now, again, just a little bit of history. When the Point Defiance, or when the Nelson Bennett Tunnel was built, it was originally built as a two-track operation. However, in the 1980s, with the advent of double-stack uh, containers, the Nelson Bennett Tunnel was not tall enough to carry or to allow the uh, to allow double stack containers to pass through the tunnel uh, in its current configuration. So BN single track the tunnel um, to allow double stack containers to be able to pass through the tunnel instead of either notching the tunnel or lowering the floor. So again, here's another issue. Is that going to be looked at by the NTSB? Probably not, but it's just a point of perspective. Now, um, oh, sorry. Now, in regards to the, um, in regards to the, um, the possibility, or with the general public, what are um, from what you see on the news uh, in your area? What is the um, out the uh, people's opinions. Uh, what's their opinions like in regards to rail travel? In regards to the um, uh, in regards to rail safety? Um, what what has what ha what are the what's the general that you uh, the general thought on that that you've seen uh, on the news? And what are uh, what is Amtrak doing, if anything? Um, what are they doing to help mitigate that? Well, as far as the general public is concerned, there doesn't seem to have been much of an impact. Um, people understand that the the the, the Talgos uh, have been an ex extremely reliable set of equipment uh, for the Cascade service, and that the the derailments. Uh, the one in July and the current one were not as a result of defective equipment. It was a result of the, the um, lack of safety culture at Amtrak. Um, again, I'll go back and I'll refer to the Cascadia study that was done when they recommended that the states of Oregon and Washington um, find an operator other than Amtrak just because of the lack of safety culture. What is Amtrak doing? Well, it's going to be a long and slow plot process, but slowly but surely, hopefully, they will build up a, a, a culture of safety. And the people who have um, the people who have been around a long time will uh, will start taking a more um, tra more active role in training some of the new people that have been coming on. 
so that they can understand better what it's what it's like to be operating 400 tons of train at 79 miles an hour and that you can't stop it on a dime and that you have to be aware of your circumstances again it's it's looking more and more from what the NTSB is showing us in their statements is that while they weren't distracted with their cell phones there was not a situational awareness by the crew of the uh, the circumstances regarding um, what, regarding the operation of the train and the, the 30 mile an hour speed restrictions. Again, it was one of the things that has come out from the NTSB re preliminary reports. The engineer didn't even apparently know that he was supposed to reduce his speed from 79 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour, and he only did it six seconds before the, the train hit the curve. Whose fault is that? Again, um, that's that's going to be speculation. But I'm sure that 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 the NTSB is taking a very long, hard look at the the amount of training that went into the crews uh, prior to beginning the operation uh, on on the Point Defiance bypass. <coughs> Again, excuse me. Again, a lot has been being made of lack of PTC. And I think I, I'm hopefully that that has been, or at least in this report that I've addressed the issue, how much of that will be addressed as a result of some of the, uh, the results of the ARRA grant. Again, that's speculation. Hopefully it will. But again, any, any additional information, we'll just have to wait and see what the NTSB has to say. All right. If I get a chance and if they do make anything, I would like to make a comment to that effect because, again, Amtrak was forced into operating the line before PTC was even installed. And to me, that's, that's wrong. But right. that's my personal opinion. And right. I'm labeling it as, as <laughs> such. Right. Well, let's do this. <laughs> let's take another quick break. And when we come back, you and I will kind of have an open discussion about everything, and um, and it'll be okay. our point of our point of views, us um, our armchair review is what we'll call it, um, and then um, and then we'll um, go from there. Well, folks, stick with us. When we come back, Bob and I will talk a little bit more about um, you know what we hope to see, what will possible uh, what will possibly come out of all this, um, and uh, uh, things that um, that we can see as um, as you know, General John Joe's, uh, what could possibly be done um, later on. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. This is the Association of American Railroads Audio Service with a report on the way the nation's freight railroads are building for the future. As the economy grows, so does the need to move raw materials, industrial products, and consumer goods. The vital link in that chain is provided by the nation's freight railroads and they've taken a look ahead and determined they need to invest more than $160 billion over the next 20 years to carry their share of the load. That's in addition to the more than $200 billion it will cost to maintain the system. The good news is that railroads are already investing record sums. More than $6.6 .6 billion, or almost 20% of revenues in 1999. That's a higher percentage of revenues put into capital improvements than any other industry in America. Railroad officials think they'll be able to increase those investments thanks to the Staggers Rail Act of 1980, 
which freed them to compete in the market against each other and against trucks and barges. They say that law has already resulted in improved productivity, lower prices to customers, and more investment. Building on that, Railroads are confident they will be able to keep up with the economy's need for even more freight transportation in the future. For the Association of American Railroads, this is Tom White in Washington. Only Donner Rails brings you exclusive railroad action entertainment, giving viewers the best seat in the house as they ride with crews of expedited freight trains over the Sierra Nevada. Check out some of our hot new titles on DVD like Cab Ride Over Donner Pass. That's good 97 stop and stretch. See how train concepts are constructed in the famed Roseville Rail Yard. Then climb aboard an EMD SD60 freight heading east over the mighty Sierra Nevada. When severe winter storms hit the Sierra Nevada's dumping up to 35 feet of snow, look out. Here comes the flanger. Every time you go up and you're on that flanger and you can't see the end of the engine, it will raise the hair on the back of your neck. Catch a ride with the Flanders Night Crew in Winter Rails Over Donner. See many other titles by visiting our website at www.donnerrails.com. All right, and we are back, and this is Kansas City Nathan, and we're with uh, Bob Alkire. And uh, uh, Bob has been telling us a lot about the... the um, the location and uh, the events and and some of the information that's come out um, already in regards to the unfortunate events uh, in Washington State with the uh, Cascades um, train number five zero one is that correct? Yes. All right. Well, we've come to kind of the point now that um, you know we can um, you know we kind of know the the rail industry we're not experts in any way shape or form you know you have the armchair coaches and and things like that for uh, sports teams and things like that but um, we're going to be kind of armchair analysis um, ana- uh, give some armchair analysis in regards to um, you know what what can be done what can be learned from this um, in the future how this will affect um, affect the uh, the country and the industry uh, in regards to this. And um, since it was my idea, I'll go ahead and start first. Um, Some of the, some of the things that I hope that really come out of this is that uh, the realization that uh, um, better training, like Bob was saying uh, earlier uh, in the previous, uh, in the previous um, uh, segment, uh, talking about uh, the three, just having three, uh, run-throughs qualifies you for the for a run. When you're dealing with passengers, uh, when you're dealing with um, with uh, um, very volatile um, equipment or very um, uh, like nuclear uh, nuclear waste or uh, flammable things like that, or passengers at that matter, um, I feel that the uh, the qualif- to be able to be qualified to run those uh, routes. Uh, with those type of passengers, you need to have you need to be able to run this uh, as a um, you need to have at least 10, 15, 20, um, 20 runs uh, through there before you're qualified to run it on your own. It's just like uh, driver's licenses with uh, or people that get driver's licenses used to. You could just go to the DMV, get your driver's license. Well, not here. Where uh, not here in Kansas, where I live. 
they require you to have over 100 hours of uh, uh, of training, and then you have to go to driver's ed and go through like 10 hours there. Um, so it's not just you know a couple of run-throughs. It needs to be uh, a lot more. The other thing is showing the importance of PTC. In this case, like again, as Bob pointed out, the rail line runs from 79 miles per hour down to 35 mile per hour restriction and a mile before the curve. And then there's another sign of the same 35 mile per hour restriction um, on a downhill slope. Well, with PTC, that would have that would have certainly helped. Um, now, would it have helped it from keeping it from derailing uh, with that short of mileage and that depending on the length of the train and the and the tonnage, um, you know, who knows? Uh, I'm not going to, I'm just doing quick math in my head, but uh, there may need to be more more space or more timing to allow to slowing of any heavy equipment because that stuff still can't stop on a dime. Um, but, if I just may insert one thing here, that Chalgo, the Chalgo trains that are used by the states of Washington, Oregon, four of them are um, thirteen car trains, and one of them, are, one of them is a twelve car train, and it is all very lightweight equipment. Uh, if you, for those of people who are familiar with history, essentially, if you go back to the nineteen fifties when the um, Railroads were um, testing out various different types of passenger equipment, lightweight passenger equipment. Calgo was um, licensed by, or Calgo licensed ACF, American Car and Foundry, to build passenger trains. Well, the, these same these Calgo trains that run in the state of Washington are essentially nothing more than updated versions of those very same types of trains. I see. Okay. That that's a very good point, and uh, but um, definitely having those uh, times with that t- amount of speed, going from seventy nine to thirty five, um, and a one percent downgrade, still um, that they may need to look at extending that out. Uh, look at extending um, kind of like speed zones, almost like how they have for vehicles. Um, on uh, on the highways when they go between 70 or 75 or or whatever the speed limit is down to say 35 uh, or 45 miles per hour they have a certain distance they may need to look at extending that out a little bit more uh, but again um, it, it shows the need definite need for PTC um, and hopefully the technology has has got to that point that it is standardized um, that throughout the entire country that could be used. Now, what about you, Bob? Well, I think one of the things that that I'm looking at is the number of high-profile derailments that Amtrak has had over the last couple of three years. And it's kind of got people wondering, are passenger trains really safe? And the reality is, yes, they are. But like everything else, it relies on humans to make sure that the trains are operated safely. Um, Unfortunately, there is a culture that has been at Amtrak that has not stressed safety. And from what my reading of the incident is, there have been so many reorganizations at Amtrak that all of the people 
or a lot of the people, I shouldn't say all of the people, but a lot of the people who had a lot of institutional knowledge and people who could effectively train the newcomers are long gone. So you've got people who, from what I'm reading of out here in Washington State with the derailment of the Amtrak 501, you had people who were not familiar with the route um, training people who were not familiar with the route. Um, so that's one of the things that really needs to take a long, hard look at is how do you get institutional knowledge returned so that people can be properly trained. Um, the other thing is, again, like you stated, PTC. Um, funding and timing were such that Amtrak was forced to op operate the route without PTC. I think when we start looking at anything else, uh, any kind of other grants that go out, um, part of the requirement needs to be that before any kind of operation starts, PTC has to be operational. And if they can't have it operational, then you don't start running trains, whether it's passenger trains, whether it's hazmat trains, um, or whether it's any kind of train that is required to be operating under positive train control. Okay. Now, one thing I, I wanted to add to that is if we could go back in time, and one thing that, um, that caught my eye I, as soon as I saw pictures, I heard about the derailment, and um, and then I um, and then saw the pictures on the reports that were coming out. The one thing that really jumped out to me was that curve um, there at the bridge. Um, and if you look at the photos, you can see where the train just literally jumped straight off. It just kept on going straight. It didn't curve or anything. Um, just kind of wondering about the um, if you could go back in time. And to see, I don't know what the property, what the property lines were, or what the uh, the the uh, the the terrain is like in that specific area. But to even make the just to make the curves on the um, make them uh, make the easements uh, less traumatic um, on those curves. That way, they wouldn't be required to have a 35 mile per hour speed restriction. They could have dropped it down to say. 45 could have 45 you know could have you know could have would have should have of course but uh, um, could that have possibly saved the uh, the train from derailing we we will never no know. doubt about it but uh, um, you know could it have um, straightening out that curve was a very doable project um, the main thing was that, that from what I have been from what I am hearing and reading based upon the um, information provided by the DOT that the Seattle Times acquired under the Freedom of Information Act. Straightening out that bridge was going to be an additional $230 million, which um, is under not the junk DOT, that which, under the, which the DOT basically said, uh, as far as we're concerned, 
30 mile an hour speed restriction over the bridge is doable and is satisfiable and it will meet the requirements of the ARRA grant that the state received in 2010. Mm -hmm. And someday down the road, if we ever get high speed rail, we will straighten out that bridge. Absolutely. Um, I will leave listeners to draw their own conclusions from that. But my own opinion is that is something that should definitely have been considered. Absolutely. Well, Bob, um, we really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And uh, we greatly appreciate you taking the time out, doing all the research, and uh, presenting this to us uh, so that we have a better understanding of what what took place and uh, and everything. But uh, and we hope to uh, have you on again um, when more information comes out, and then hopefully we'll have even uh, more happier times uh, where we can be um, talking about a, a lot of the things that are going up uh, going on up in the. Uh, northwest uh, quadrant of the country well i certainly look forward to it nathan um it certainly would be um would certainly be keeping you updated on in- information that comes out uh with regard to this accident uh, i'm sure over time we'll hear bits and pieces from the national transportation safety board and of course when they come out with their full report uh, which, again, as I said, they're looking at 12 to 24 months. So when that comes out, perhaps we could do another program and we could take a look at the report and go through that piece by piece and say what, you know, what their recommendations are and what they found fault with. Uh, and, and certainly um, with, with information with what's going on up here in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of things going on. There's... Um, projects to expand uh, light rail up here in in the sound transit region. Um, There are projects to expand commuter rail also in the same area. Um, There has been talk revived again about additional service going uh, going to Spokane to supplement the Empire Builder. So there's a lot of things going on up here. There's some possibility of additional train service up to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. So there's a lot going on up here. A lot of it is just in the talking stage, whether it will come to fruition or not, who knows. But as things do uh, start becoming talking points and as they start becoming more and more um, to the point where there are actual possibilities, we can certainly do more programs talking about um, rail up here in the Pacific Northwest. All right. Sounds like a plan. Well, Bob, thanks again. And folks, um, until next time, be safe and have a, uh, have a great time along the rails. Take care. You too, Nathan. Thanks for listening to this week's Let's Talk Train Show. Join us next week as we continue along the line talking trains. Remember, you can listen to this and other previously aired shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, by visiting our website at letstalktrains.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and remember, the Let's Talk Train Show is produced and copyrighted by the American Passenger Rail Heritage Foundation. To learn more about the APRHF, visit their website at aprhf.org.
most of us use common sense to stay alive. If you see a shark in the water, you don't go for a swim. If you hear thunder, you don't stand under a tree. And if a dog growls, you just don't pet it. So if you're thinking about crossing in front of a train, think again. Just don't do it. Stay alert and stay alive. Go to www.oli.org/shark.